And so this morning, for many of you, this is going to be review, but I think it's good to review the basics, amen? That's right. We just uh, heard about that in our Bible study this morning. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be redeemed and why we need to be redeemed. Amen. So instead of Joshua, we're, uh, because of the baptisms, we're switching this morning to this more basic topic. And I think it's so desperately needed in our world today. I, I talk to people that attend churches regularly, and they don't understand the basic gospel. And that, that's scary. Our culture is increasingly ignorant of what Jesus taught and of Bible knowledge in general. And I think our world, our, our culture is losing its understanding of even what sin is. You just use the word sin and people go, well, what are you talking about? What exactly do you mean by that? And that's because we, we don't know who our creator is. If you don't know who your creator is and who is the standard by which everything is judged, then how could you know what sin is? If you think we're just a higher form of pond scum, you know, that evolved and evolved and evolved, and here we are and there's nothing else to it, of course there's no such thing as sin. We're just an accident. But knowing that our maker is a holy God, the one described in the Bible, we begin to see that he himself is the requirement. His, his perfection is the standard. He, he is truth, and so he expects us to be truthful. He's faithful, and so he expects us to be faithful. He's loving, and, and so forth. And so he expects us to be like him because he made us in his image. The problem is that we fail on a regular basis, amen? Anybody not fail? <laughs> we think selfish thoughts. We deceive others. We think about how we, what we say is going to reflect on us. Um, so many other actions and thoughts that just aren't like God at all. And that is what the Bible calls sin. And God says we are all sinners. We're all unlike our perfect God who made us. We can easily observe that reality in the world around us and in our own lives. You know, even monks in monasteries say it's really hard to keep their thought life pure. It doesn't matter if you separate yourself from the world. The problem is in here. Not, not, it's out there, yes, but it's in here too. And the reason that is the case is because we've inherited Adam's fallen nature. He was created in perfection, but he was given a choice. And he could choose to disobey that one command that God gave him. They were, think of it, they were living in perfection. The, the perfect husband, perfect wife, in the perfect setting with everything they needed, and all they had to do is not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one command. You would think if we, we could at least keep one command. If we had everything and we were perfect, couldn't we just keep one command? And what Adam and Eve's account tells us is no, we can't. That's how <laughs> fallen we are. If we have a choice to disobey, eventually we'll disobey. And so we inherited that nature. Now, when they fell, a descendant, got Jesus, God promised Eve that a descendant from her, a male 
singular descendant from her was going to crush the head of the one who deceived her, Satan. So right there at the beginning of the fall, we had the first good news. Someone's coming through the seed of a woman, not of man and woman, but of a woman. Now, why does God demand goodness from us? Well, as I said before, it's because he is good and he's also just and he loves goodness. And conversely, that means he hates evil. He hates what is uh, detrimental to us. That's why he gives us his laws and his commands. His holy nature demands that we be just and that wrong must be punished. If he didn't, he would be an unjust God. So he can't allow injustice to go unpunished. He demands we be perfect as he is. But that creates a big dilemma, amen? Because we just can't be. Even our efforts to try to be good can be offensive to God. And that's because we think there is enough goodness in us and confidence in our own abilities that is somehow if we try really, really, really hard, we'll be able to please God on our own. The most popular religion in the world is good works. In fact, I would say every religion in the world, other than Christianity, is based on what we do. And the Bible's declaring we just can't. It's not possible. There's nothing that we can do on our own to be right with God. All other religions give us steps. You know, you got... Islam with its five pillars. And if you keep those five pillars, if you do all those actions, then maybe, maybe you, Allah might receive you into his kingdom. So we think if we try really hard, we could do it. How are you doing with that? That's honest answer. You know, one way we could find out is just sit down with somebody and tell, ask them to tell you everything that comes to their mind for the next three minutes. And you'll figure out, yeah, we're not perfect. If we're honest, we can lie about what comes into our mind. But if we're honest, we're all tempted. To think we have no need of God's intervention and can do it on our own is pride. And pride is is one of the most destructive sins of all. In fact, it's what brought Lucifer uh, down and what turned him from his glorious state to become an enemy of God. Works religion started with the first son of Adam, Cain. Cain and Abel offered their sacrifice to God. Cain worked really hard, plowing the ground, weeding the garden, and he gave him his first fruits, and he thought, God's surely pleased because I really tried hard. And Cain just gave a sacrifice by faith of the, of the lambs that were born that God gave through the sheep, and God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. And Cain got so upset because I tried so hard and God's not pleased with me to the extent that he killed his brother, Abel. That's where works ends up. The good works theme carries on with Abraham. God promised Abraham 
a son, but his wife was barren. She was getting up in years. And so Sarah suggested, have a wife, uh, have a child through my handmaid. And they thought they could help God to fulfill the promise, which only ended up in heartache and a battle that continues to this day. So much for helping God, huh? And then came God's laws given to Moses on Sinai, and they consisted of moral, societal, and worship laws for the nation of Israel. And if they kept those laws, God promised to bless them in physical ways, to prosper them. And the Jews were unable to keep those laws in periods in their history where they ignored them altogether. They even lost, for a time, the written law. That's how much they valued it. And when they became so evil that they were no different from their neighbors, they went into captivity as a judgment, which Moses predicted. He said, I know you guys. Eventually, you're going to fall away from this God that we worship, and he's going to have to send you into judgment. And it happened just like that. So eventually, they, God's grace brought them back to the promised land, and they thought, well, we, we must have not tried hard enough to keep God's laws. We failed, so now we're going to really try. And they built all these thousands of laws around the law so that they'd be sure to be righteous and be good. But that wasn't the whole point of the law. Right in the law, it says, and by the law, I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible. It says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. It never says the law makes us holy. It never, never says we can become holy by doing everything in it. It says over and over again, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Their efforts to try harder resulted in a group called the Pharisees. And, and they made all those extra laws and they would try so hard to be good. And they would even tithe by counting the leaves on their plants to make sure they gave a tenth to God. I mean, they were serious fanatics, and they crucified Jesus. That's where their good works ended up. The Apostle Paul was the epitome of trying to please God by good works. Before his conversion, he concluded that Christians were heretics, and so to really please God, he should hunt them down, kill and imprison them. That was his way of trying to please God. And then Jesus appeared to him. And his life was totally transformed. He became the greatest evangelist the world has probably ever known. And Paul later wrote, after his salvation, he wrote, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what are we to do? How are we to let this God make us holy? We need the intervention of God's mercy that he promised Adam and Eve at the, from the very beginning. He promised it again later on to Moses. And then he promised that that one to be born would become, come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then later on, he promised it would come through the line of David. These were a, a thread that ran through the whole Old Testament about the one who is coming and his lineage. He told the prophets where and when this one would be born. That's how the wise men knew to come at that, part of the reason they knew to come at that time. He told them he would, this one to come would be born of a virgin. The prophets told of where 
he would do most of his teaching. They described the area. They described the miracles that he would perform and how he'd be rejected, suffer, die, and conquer death. The prophecy, though, that answers our dilemma is in the book of Isaiah, where in the fourth suffering servant song, Isaiah said that this righteous one, a righteous one, would come and bear our sins. He would take our transgressions upon himself and die for us. It tells us that's the answer. Finally. But how can someone who has sin take our sins? They have their own sins to which they have to be judged. So how could our sins be dealt with? The only way it was possible was through that miraculous conception in Mary's womb, predicted by Isaiah as well. God brought his promise to pass in that very bloodline that he promised through the ages. The only sinless man to ever lived asked his critics at one time when they were harassing him, these Pharisees, these religious scholars and, and leaders who tried so hard to be good, and he said, which of you can convince me of sin? Now, how would you like to do, say that? In front of your family and your friends, can any of you convince me of sin? I wouldn't dare say that because they'd let me know, right? Especially those who are closest to you. You know, uh, one time Moody said, uh, somebody asked Moody, uh, or told Moody, I, I've been sanctified completely. And he said, can I ask your wife about that? He could do it with conviction. He proved he was the one by the miracles he did, by the fulfillment of the prophecies about him. He even raised three different people from death. Stilled raging waters, wind, healed paralysis, deafness, blindness, and every disease brought before him. The demons even knew who he was and submitted to him in fear. The one who is one with God entered his own creation to have a relationship with us. Someone this week asked me, why would he do such a thing? Why would God enter into his creation and die for us? Well, the answer is in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. All he asks is that we acknowledge our sin, ask to be forgiven of it, just believe he accomplished for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and receive that forgiveness. And that means we have to humble ourselves and recognize that we could never do it on our own that we could never be good enough for God and that we desperately need Jesus. It also implies we need him to be our Lord to guide us through this life and finish the work that he started in us. And praise God, he promised he would finish the work he started in us. I love that promise. That's a great promise. Do you see the difference between faith and works? 
Just as God had revealed the law given to Moses, he is the one who makes us holy. God's love for us was revealed throughout the history of Israel in all the different names of God. The Old Testament describes him as our provider, our healer, the one who sees us, the shepherd, our rock, God with us, our righteousness, and we see all those names in Jesus. Jesus is our shepherd. He's our righteousness. He's the rock that we stand on. The one who heals our sin-sick souls. He's everything to us. He's our righteousness. We see all those names in him. Everything Jesus said and did points us to the love of God. His compassion on the crowds, his willingness to travel constantly without a home, to reach as many as possible, and to demonstrate his willingness to heal all who came to him and to show his power over sickness and death. He put up with everything that we endure and a whole lot more for us. And that's why we can know he understands our hearts when we pray. But the greatest demonstration of love that will ever be is his willingness to die for our sins. The cross was the most agonizing way to die ever invented. The torture of scourging that he endured before the cross was enough to kill a man. And hanging there in humility, he had to pull on those nails in his wrist and push on those in his feet just to breathe. And the things he said in that agony were for us. We'll talk about that more, Lord willing, when Easter comes. He knew the agony that he was going to endure. But our sins placed on him and God's justice for those sins was something that even he did not want to endure. And yet he did because he chose to obey the Father and because of his love for us. There was no other way our sins could be removed. There had to be justice, a just penalty for our sins. There was no other way to free us from the punishment that our sins demand. It was the only way for justice to be done and for us to have the promise of heaven. Thankfully, though, the story doesn't end there. Jesus is different from every other religious leader and that he walked out of his grave. That makes all the difference. You can say all kinds of things, but if you walk out of your own grave, you better believe it. Because he selflessly gave himself as our scapegoat, God honored him with a name above all names. He raised him from death because it wasn't possible for the one who is life to be held by it. Our punishment was paid in full. He rose from the grave, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And then he stayed on the earthly plane for 40 days, teaching his disciples before he sent, ascended into heaven. Some of his last words were to go and make disciples of all nations. That is to go and teach them what he said and did, teach others what he accomplished so that they can come to know the love that he showed us. He followed that command by telling us to baptize those whom we disciple 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he promised to be with us to the end. He sent his Holy Spirit, who is his presence with us. He gives us conviction when we stray, peace when we're making the right choices, empowers us to live victorious lives, and helps us to tell others about Jesus' love for us. You know, sometimes when we're talking to somebody, the words just that come out of our mouth were just like, what? What did I just say? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because the Holy Spirit just takes over and speaks to that person's heart. Sometimes either through fear or disobedience, we sense a lack of his presence. But then we simply ask for God to fill us again. And he does. He delights to hear that prayer. The baptisms we saw are a declaration that they have died to their old sinful ways. That's the picture of going under the water, being buried with him. And then coming up out of that water is a picture of new resurrected life. The power that raised Jesus from the death is active in our lives to make us new every day. Our minds are renewed by the word of God. He walks with us again as he did in the garden. And we're free of guilt and shame because Jesus took it all on himself. So now we're to live as new creations. And the fruits of the Spirit are to be a description of our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. They describe the life of Christ in us. Jesus said we are to be as he was, lights in the darkness to shine for him. And as the Father sent him, so he sends you. He promises all things will work together for good for us and that there's no good thing that he will withhold from us. There's going to be tribulation and difficulties, but he will see us through every one because he has overcome the world. Amen? And he has promised to return for us. Whether we die first or we're caught up to meet him in the air, we know our destiny. Just as hundreds of promises were fulfilled in his first coming, so those of his second coming are certain. He will bring justice to the earth. Life everlasting is ours in Jesus because we are in him who is life. He's able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Our eternity with Jesus will be without tears, without the sorrows of this life. Those who have glimpsed that place say the beauty and wonder of it is impossible to describe in human terms. Those who are baptized today entered this amazing truth. They're beginning or are renewing their lives with Jesus as their master, their lover, their friend, their teacher. And they'll always look back on the day they died and rose again with him. Every time the old nature rises, they'll be able to remind themselves that it was buried with Christ and has no place in them now. They can look to the resurrection power and find the freedom to do the will of God. It's a new beginning. It's a life of faith rather than works. The good works will come, but not by our own efforts but by the power of the risen Christ in them. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this transformation that takes place in Romans chapter 6, 3 through 11. He says, 
Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And Paul's saying that we who are immersed, that word uh, bapto, that we get baptism from, it means to dip into something, like a, a cup dipped into a, a, a bucket to draw out the water or an or a, a iron a tool that's dipped into the water to harden it when it's heated. Baptism is a symbolic action that declares the person was one with those who followed Jesus and have died to their old life. To be baptized into the name of Jesus means we belong to him. We become his possession. We are his, not our own, because we were bought with a price. And then verses 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The effect of our union with Christ in his death means the power of sin over our lives has been broken. We sing, my chains are gone, or he breaks every chains. We sing one of those lines this morning. Did you change the songs this week, or were they the ones that were going to go with the other message? It's so amazing, because the songs that she picked were for a whole different sermon, but they fit so good with the baptisms today. And, and we find that happen over and over again, that either the call to worship or the songs just somehow all come together. But that power to, to set us free. You know, we have, some of you have been addicted to drugs. Uh, some of you have been addicted to lust. Some of you have been addicted to wealth. <laughs> or food, but Jesus has set you free. Hallelujah. Sin no longer has the mastery over you. In, in Jesus' resurrected life, you can say no to sin. Our new life in Jesus demonstrates that freedom to choose righteousness, which is really selfless. Verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the faith he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we live in and with his power and his life. We're in him and he's in us and it's a continual baptism. In him, he in us. We're no longer fear death for like Jesus, the life we live, we live to God. The result is that we count ourselves dead to sin. Uh, it's going to raise its ugly head. It's going to tempt you. It's going to say, I want to be the master and you can just say, by the power of Jesus, I say, you were crucified with Christ. I have the freedom not to obey you any longer. 
We live in a greater power, the power that raised Jesus from death. You are witnesses this morning of the declaration those were making in their baptism today. And I would encourage you to welcome them into the family of God. In fact, I would ask you three, those that, all of you that joined the church today and those who were baptized to just come and stand up here at the end of the service and we'll welcome you into Wayside Chapel and, and congratulate you on your declaration you made in baptism. And if after hearing this, maybe you too are thinking, you know, I need to be baptized. I need to be free. I need to start a new life in Jesus. I'd invite you to come to speak with me during the week. Amen? Amen. What a great morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for each one entering into your death and resurrection today. For Mark, for Jeremy, and for Christian, especially we lift them up to you and ask that you help them to continue in the faith, to stand strong in you, to grow, to continue to add to their faith goodness and to their goodness steadfastness and, to, and on and on, Lord. Everything about you increasing in their life so that they'll be fruitful. We pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their lives and we pray that the power to be a witness will be manifested in them. We trust you'll strengthen them to dedicate their bodies as instruments of righteousness. And we pray that they'll grow in discernment and in the knowledge of your, your word. We praise you, Lord, for drawing them to you and for us being able to witness this moment in their lives. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And now receive the benediction to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you.